Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. It's man-to-man coverage. This is the PFT PM Podcast. And now, your host, Mike Florio. The PFT PM Posse, by popular demand, has insisted repeatedly upon this next guest joining the program. He is joining NBC on a full-time basis starting next month. He is the great Peter King. Peter, welcome. Mike, how's it going? Welcome in more ways than one. Welcome to the NBC family on a full-time basis. Welcome to the PFTPM podcast. You've now had a month or so for the dust to settle. Have you gone through the, oh my God, what have I done moment yet? Not for a moment. That's good. And I'm surprised about that because I loved where I was for so long. Um, But you just get to a point after a while where you just say, you know, change is good. Uh, I lived in the same town in New Jersey for 19 years, in Montclair, New Jersey, and I, my, my wife Ann and I started looking around, uh, and at one point I was finding fault with every place we went to see. In, we were going to move to Boston. And I was finding fault with everything you know, that, that we were looking at, and Ann finally looked at me and said to me, you're never going to move. We're going to die in Montclair. Not that there'd be anything wrong with that, but but we wanted to experience something new. And I said, you know, you're absolutely right. Sometimes you just got to take the leap of faith, uh, and maybe it won't be as good. I have absolutely no idea if this job will be as good, better, whatever, but I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm excited about it. First column is July 16th. Go on my training camp tour and uh, see a lot of things, meet a lot of new people, so... I'm fired up about it. Yeah, and, you know, it is amazing because I think it's human nature to have that, oh, my God, what have I done moment. And I know every time I've ever made a big change, I have that. And at times it prompts a serious reconsideration of what I've done. And at other times it's just part of the normal adjusting to change. And it's not easy just because you get used to, you get comfortable. You you don't like having everything exactly. turned upside down. Yeah. But I guess yeah. you knew in your heart the time had come to, to do something different. See, that's... That's the whole thing. You just sort of feel, and look, there's a lot of reasons you and I have talked about it, but it, but in general, I think one of the one of the things that happened to me, I just turned 61, and you know, I had two brothers die young, my father died young right around this time, you know. The average age of their deaths combined is 61 years old. And you just start to think to yourself, nothing's guaranteed. I'm in great shape. I I run, I work out <clears throat> four or five times a week, so I'm, I'm not worried about my health, but you say, well, what, what guarantee is there that I'm going to wake up tomorrow? And then, you know, Mike, I also think, and you, you are on the absolute total front lines of this, quite honestly, because your site, even in the absolute total dead period, has to put out all of these, all of these posts. And the fact is, I just started thinking about it this year. And putting out a bunch of, of, of stuff at the MMQB in, 
June and the first two-thirds of July. Quite honestly, I, I mean, I, I'm not saying I was having nightmares about it, but I just didn't want to do it. You know, I think a lot of times the NFL has created this 24-7, 365 monster that has to be fed. Uh, I'm just not particularly interested in feeding it uh, 24-7, 365. So I do think that it isn't that I don't love my job. I absolutely love my job. But I don't necessarily want to write stories on June 11th that I have to use more imagination than I, than I do any other time of the year. And quite honestly, for absolutely minimal return, because most people are not reading football stuff on June 11th. Hey, it is amazing how, how much harder it is to find things to write about because there's just it's so much easier during the football season even though it's so much more hectic and frenetic the fruit is just falling out of the trees and landing in your shoes this time of year you got to shake the tree you got to use every device to find something fresh local papers from some obscure burg in the middle of texas where a guy did a football camp and he said something remotely interesting hey there's a story because what the hell there's nothing else to write right now so it really is a different kind of stress, but it is stressful when I sit down at my workstation this time of year and say, okay, what the hell are we going to write about? Because you really have to go look for it. Yeah, and I have no idea what your what your traffic is uh, on June 28th versus on October 28th, but it's got to be a fraction because, and, I, and I've thought this for a long time, you know, there's there's nothing wrong with getting away from football and going to read a book and just and shutting it down, just like players do for most of a month. Um, I, I, there's and coaches, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's healthy. And uh, you know, I've always I've always marveled at what the NFL did. You know, maybe starting about 40 years ago, they really started to think we want to create the kind of hot stove league that that major league baseball has always enjoyed and so we're going to put events in the off season and and this took years to happen but we're going to put events in the off season we're going to make them a big deal and you know mike when i was covering the the giants in the 80s and they would have just basically you know very small parts of an off-season program. They, you never could get players to talk in the off-season. They were off limits. See you in training camp. Now, if they had an appearance somewhere, Phil Sims wins the Super Bowl MVP. He's got an appearance somewhere in Jersey. I'm going to go track him down and find him and talk to him about something. But in general, now teams open up OTAs. You know, off-season practices, coaches talk, players talk. People never stop talking, and nothing has happened. <laughs> and they keep talking about, you know, I, I, whatever it is. So it's, it's, it, the NFL has done a good job of staying relevant and in the headlines for most of the year. I'm just not crazy about propagating a lot of those headlines, that's all. I think one factor, Peter, has been the development of free agency and this notion that every year is a distinct 
entity, every team, and there's so much change that happens that that's what you talk about. How is the team going to be this year with this new player, that player gone, this new coach, whatever the case may be, that's where a lot of the chatter comes from. And the teams that have a lot of continuity, both with players and with coaches, few and far between as they are, those are the ones who really don't have anything for us to talk about because there isn't any change that provides the impetus for us to ask a bunch of questions about what's going to happen this season with that team. No question. I I think also that teams that were down the previous year want to rev up the local fan base and want to say, hey, we're improving, we're coming back, we're going to be really good this year. Um, and we're and, – and because, look, Mike, a lot of these teams, like right now, I have a friend who's a New York Giants season ticket holder. He's got six seats. Uh, he paid the PSL. <clears throat> and I was with him at dinner a week ago, and he said, yeah, I just renewed. I said, I, this, I thought so hard this year because last year I didn't go to any games. I just sold every one of the tickets um, because I found that – I'm just sitting at home, and it's a much better experience, at least for me at my age. He's probably 55 years old, and he's a huge fan. And the thought of him not going to the Giants games, I mean, the season went lousy and everything, but 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 he he really thought long and hard about whether he wanted to renew his tickets. So it's good for the Giants to – make Saquon Barkley available a bunch of times to to you know to talk about Pat Shermer how he's going to get the best out of Eli Manning at age 37 and and all that stuff because otherwise you just sit there and say eh we got a new coach we drafted a new guy but I don't know if I'm really that excited and so you know and the Giants are just one of 32 everybody's finding something to get excited about yeah, and that's the key. You market hope, plausible or implausible hope, to every fan base, and you make teams think, you make fans think that that we have a chance this year to get to the playoffs. And we've seen enough low seeds in the playoffs have success in January to have that implicit notion out there that, hey, if everything breaks our way and we get to the playoffs, who knows what's going to happen? And there isn't one team that I look at this year. Every year, most years, there's one team I look at and say that team has no chance. I look at the 32 teams this year, and there isn't one glaring, oh, crap, that team has no chance whatsoever. Do you see a team that you could look at right now and scratch off the list? Um, well, for this year, you can scratch off the Browns. <clears throat> I mean, Care- I think oh, the Browns oh, are going to oh, be better. Oh, careful. But- you, you, you never know, though. I think that if all those players live up to their potential and they get a few breaks— I think the Browns could could be in the mix for a you know a six seed in the AFC, don't you? Not really. I mean, <laughs> they've got such a long way to go, and you know, I, you know, nobody's nobody's talking about the fact, uh, you know, that that Joe Thomas is gone, the best player in their franchise since they became you know 19 years ago since they came back to the NFL. Uh, he's gone. And last year, the guys who replaced him at left tackle were an abject disaster. So, I mean, that's that's one thing uh, that that everybody seems to gloss over pretty easily. Plus, look, I, I'm not I'm not anti Tyrod Taylor. I just am not. I haven't I haven't drunk the Tyrod Taylor Kool Aid. 
Uh, I happen to think that, that Mayfield will probably be playing sooner than later, but we'll see. But I don't know, Mike. I, I just I don't see it, and it could very well be uh, that they could make a jump to six or seven wins. That wouldn't surprise me at all. Jumping to ten wins, uh, you know, I, I don't see it. So you don't buy the idea that Tyrod Taylor is the guy all year and that they're going the opposite of what they did last year with Deshaun Kaiser and putting Baker Mayfield on the bench all season? Because that's the sense they're trying to create. No question, and that could, that's what they want to do. But here's the problem with that thought, Mike, that if this team is 1-6 and six, and Tyrod Taylor's the 25th-rated quarterback in the NFL, how on God's green earth does Hugh Jackson not play Baker Mayfield? And, you, and, and, and answer me this. Both of those things are quite possible, wouldn't you say? Maybe, maybe Tyrod Taylor, because he's always had a good rating, won't be down that far. But, but if they're not winning and Hugh Jackson says, hey, I've won two games in the last two and a half years, i got to save my job. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm not... It wouldn't be ideal for them, but I think it's probably more likely than not. See, and I think Hugh Jackson should not be the head coach of that team. And I think of all the rules that I could come up with that should apply to the NFL, going 0-16 as a head coach should disqualify you from ever being a head coach again for the rest of your career. Especially when you look at the Browns last year, they had four, five, six close games. At some point, the coach has to will the team to a win in that setting and I'm looking at their early season schedule and really when you're the Browns every team looks better than you but when you start with Steelers Saints right out of the gates that's 0-2 you got to hope you get lucky against the Jets week three to get a win you go to Oakland the next week you got the Ravens after that you get the Chargers after that that is one in five right out of the gates and maybe you get lucky at Tampa and you make it to two and five before the Steelers pummel you right before Halloween so you're right this could be another disaster for the Browns right out of the gates it could be and again you know we don't really know what any of these teams are going to be I I think the only thing we do know is that Tampa Bay is not going to Tampa Bay's probably got the toughest three game stretch of any team in football and they've got it in the first three weeks of the season, and they've got it when uh, you know when they've got to play Fitzpatrick. Uh, it's it, but but I do think this that that when I look at the way this this league is, I agree with you, Mike. Things could get crazy. Things can change, and they can change quickly. I just I don't buy that they can change that quickly for the Cleveland Browns. What do you think of my take that? It actually may be better for the Buccaneers and Jameis Winston for him to not play those first three games because Saints, Eagles, Steelers, he could come out of there in such a down, feeling so badly and beaten and discouraged that it makes the next 13 games more difficult. Whereas if he misses the three due to a suspension, he comes in invigorated, chip on his shoulder, and they'd have been 0-3 anyway with or without him. He's not ruined potentially by those first three games. Do you any? Does that hold water at all for you? Um, not particularly. <laughs> Crap. Because because <laughs> to me, I think he he might come back saying all the right things and everything. But I mean, Mike, you know, he's got to come back with his tail between his legs. You know, he <clears throat> Jason Light 
told everybody who would listen. We did all of the homework that we needed to do on this guy. We have faith in him uh, and all this. And again, I'm not going to sit here and because I, I don't, I don't know categorically what he did. Uh, so I, I, I don't, I, I can't sit here and say, you know, he's evil incarnated. But, but I, I just will say this: that that Jameis Winston entered the league with two strikes on him and Mariano Rivera on the mound. I mean, he can't. He couldn't afford any mistakes, and he's made a few. And right now, you're the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. You have to win this year, and so you're going to have the mayhem of losing your starting quarterback for the first three games of the year. Yeah, I would guess, just like you, that they were going to go 0-3 anyway. But it's it's just a bad situation for your starting quarterback to be suspended for the exact reason why a lot of people in in football and in life you know eschewed him before this draft you know before he was drafted and so i i I just i don't see much positive coming out of that well peter the the factor in all of this that is still not known and won't be known until that letter comes from 345 park avenue to Jameis winston's inbox what the NFL has determined that he did, the right. chapter and verse detail that justifies the suspension. And I've been saying for the last week, that could be the fuse that results in the Buccaneers having no choice but to get rid of him right now, depending upon how the local reaction goes, national reaction. This is the Me Too era. That's why the Uber driver came forward in the first place. She didn't do it for money. She didn't do it for notoriety. She didn't do it because she had some score to settle with Jameis Winston. She did it because people were coming forward with their tales of being abused. And so in this new environment, if you do see something that is fairly graphic and disturbing in writing from the commissioner to Jameis Winston, that may cause people to say, I don't think the Buccaneers or any other NFL team should be employing this guy. So I think there's still some dominoes that could right. fall on this, and it'll be Ryan You're Fitzpatrick right. beyond I mean, week there's three. No, there's no guarantee he's going to be there this year. I think it's likely he'll be there this year, but we'll see. Uh, but I, I do think the biggest question in Tampa is, uh, you know, look, he, no matter who's going to quarterback that team the first three games, it's going to be pretty hard to win. So now you, you say, okay, is there a chance? Is there a chance that the Bucks are good enough to go ten and three with Jameis Winston playing the inconsistent Jameis Winston? Could they go ten and three against the rest of their schedule and save everybody's job at one buck place? That's the big question that I would have for people around Tampa, and i I have my I have my doubts. I mean, I think. That, that, look, you know, we saw what happened with Lovey Smith after two years. We saw what happened with Greg Schiano after two years. This is the team and the ownership group that prior to this January had the itchiest trigger finger of all ownership groups in football. And they chose wisely, in my opinion, to give Dirk Cutter and Jason Light one more year. And maybe more than one. Who knows? But they better show some signs, some very positive signs, or else it's not just going to be a failed trade for a kicker that dooms Jason Light. 
Uh, and it's not just going to be the inability of an offensive mind like Dirk Cutter to uh, to make Jameis Winston able to play without making real rookie mistakes after three years in the NFL. Well, Peter, here's the reality. If John Gruden doesn't get 10 years, $100 million, or whatever the real numbers are from the Raiders, he's the coach of the Bucks right now. And Cutter's, Cutter's already out of a job. So you're yeah. right. The, the, there, there is not much margin for error. And they're in a division that has three, not just playoff contenders, three playoff teams from last year, three Super Bowl contenders between the Saints, the Falcons, and the Panthers. And that's going to make it even harder for them to go 10-3 and three in, their, in their Winston games, assuming he's only suspended three games and assuming he's still on the team. You know what, Mike? I... I did something, I've been working on it this week, and I did something, I analyzed the NFC South, uh, you know, over the last 15 years. And it's, you know, it's absolutely amazing about that division is that the, the, the Bucks, the Panthers, or I'm sorry, the Saints, the Panthers, and the Falcons, New Orleans, Carolina, and Atlanta are practically in a dead heat over the last 15 years, and the Bucks are a thousand games behind. Oh, you know, <laughs> and and now this year, it's going to be very, very difficult if uh, this Winston thing uh, is as bad as it as it apparently is. It's going to be very tough for this team and and this organization to stand pat, even though. They have proven time and again that when they change coaches, uh, they have they have very they have they're the most impatient team in football over the last. I, well, it's got to be them in Cleveland over the last four or five years. Let's flip it around from the teams that will be competing for the bottom of the power rankings and go to the top. I have people ask me all the time this time of year, who's the team to beat this season, and. I feel like it's the Eagles because, number one, they won the Super Bowl. And number two, their starting quarterback is going to have extra motivation to actually earn the Super Bowl ring that he would get the next time around. But do you see a team that is just head and shoulders above everyone else, or is it more jumbled at the top? I think it's pretty jumbled right now, Mike. I, and I think we are, uh, we are seeing uh, a real potential change of the guard right now in the NFL like we haven't seen in some time. And I just will tell you this. I mean, you know, in the span of, let's say, you know, basically uh, totally like eight or nine months, okay, the, the, the weakest division in football, uh, you know, it, it, arguably uh, a year ago at this time, was the uh, was the NFC West, and now I might argue that uh, that the worst two teams in the NFC West right now today you could argue are top ten teams in the NFL, and that's on the strength of you know Sean McVay slash Jared Goff, uh, Sean McVay turning around the career of Jared Goff, uh, and and then obviously the Garoppolo thing where. You know, Garoppolo, I, I think he's the most charismatic, interesting, compelling figure right now of the 2007, 2018 season. Uh, I, because of the way he finished last year, because of the way he lifted that team up by the bootstraps, seemingly by himself, uh, and because he's got a really smart, innovative coach 
Uh, and and I just think that I'm so curious to watch the 49ers and the Rams. Andy Benoit of the MMQB had, had a great series on uh, the California teams, and his, his whole point last week was that the California teams could make it the greatest season ever in the state of California uh, for the NFL. Well, especially because about it. yeah, NFC would, West plays AFC West, too. Yeah, so you've got the you cross-pollination. If Oakland made the playoffs, no, obviously not. Would you be surprised if Sandy, if uh, the Chargers made the playoffs? No. What about the Rams and the 49ers? I wouldn't be surprised if either one of those teams makes the playoffs. So we're sitting here basically now saying that there's four legitimate playoff contenders in the state of California. And, you know, two of them were at the absolute bottom of the heap a year ago at this time. So I, I think I think this is a really fascinating year in the NFL. Fascinating. Because there are so many new things that could happen this year that, you know, we, we, you talk about, you know, what would really help the ratings. How about, how about the Rams and the 49ers being two of the best five or six or seven teams in football on October 1st? And all of a sudden you have this, you know, this, this, this division that looked like it was so woebegone. And now uh, it, it, could, it could be a really deep, interesting, terrific division, particularly if the Arizona Cardinals can walk and chew gum at the same time. And they still have enough good players. And early reviews on Steve Wilkes are very good. So I, I think it's I think this is I, I'm I'm as excited and looking forward to this season about as much as I have in any season in recent years. How much stock, Peter, do you put into the notion that as defenses compile more film on Jimmy Garoppolo in the Kyle Shanahan system, they'll be able to take away what he likes to do, they'll force him into things that maybe he doesn't like to do, and maybe there will be a correction from what we saw late last year? I absolutely agree with that. What are teams doing right now in the AFC West? I will bet you a thousand bucks that Pete Carroll has given his defensive staff an assignment of, uh, okay, I want you watching every snap of the Rams on offense. I want you watching every snap of the 49ers on offense with Garoppolo, and we need to come up with some change-ups we're going to throw at them. And I think it's, I, I bet it's the exact same thing with, with Steve Wilkes in Arizona, that, that, that you don't stay hidden in the NFL. And, and I think that's why I think it's incumbent on Kyle Shanahan and Sean McVay, both of whom are extremely imaginative. It's incumbent on them to, to make sure that they just don't stand pat. And I mean, look, I, I've gotten to know Sean McVay some. I talked to him before he went on vacation. I mean, I'm just telling you, he's into continuing education, too. It's it's not just the other teams in the division. He will have a few new things up his sleeve, and and obviously Kyle Shanahan, who does it every year anyway, is going to have some new stuff, and he will continue um, to do new stuff with with Garoppolo. Now, but you're right, Mike. I I think that that is something. You, you know, you would think that that he could regress back a little bit. Uh, and I think it's 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 possible, but 
that's that's why they play the games. Well, and Deshaun Watson had a great comment recently as he tries to follow up on that stellar rookie season up until he tore the ACL. Shereen Williams was talking to him about the notion that Aaron Rodgers said, hey, that's the biggest challenge for Deshaun Watson in year two. The defenses know more about what he is, and they're more prepared to stop him. And Watson's reaction was, well, I know them better, too. So yeah. they need to worry about me the knowing what they do. The thing about Deshaun Watson, in my opinion, is that, uh, I mean, if you look at what Deshaun Watson did last year, Mike, and this is what I remember talking to Bill O'Brien about this um, after he got hurt and and sort of kind of bemoaning the fact that we weren't going to get to see Deshaun Watson complete quite possibly one of the best rookie seasons a quarterback has ever had. And I mean just just think of just think of what he did. He went toe to toe at New England against Tom Brady. He went toe to toe at Seattle against Russell Wilson. And after the game, Richard Sherman said to me, we faced them all, Brady, Aaron Rodgers, everybody, Breeze. This was the best game a quarterback has played against this defense. And so then basically we were robbed of the last nine games of what could have been just an absolutely incredible season. That's another reason why I think this year is so fascinating, because if you look at some of the players who should be able to come back, they include a guy who probably would have been offensive rookie of the year if he didn't get hurt, Deshaun Watson, and a guy possibly who would have been the MVP in Carson Wentz if he didn't get hurt. And so we were sort of robbed of, you know, a couple of incredible possibilities. And so we didn't get to see him. So now that adds to the drama of what we're going to see this year. And, Mike, by the way, by the way, I mean, we haven't even talked. I have, we have hardly talked at all about Nick Foles and the fact that, you know, he could be the first Super Bowl quarterback, winning quarterback, MVP, you know, to to win the MVP of the Super Bowl and next year, week one, be riding the pines. It, it's really it, – and, 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 and look, we all saw Foles toward the end of the regular season and we're saying, man, how are the Eagles going to win? We saw him be an underdog at home to a sixth seed in the first playoff game. It was amazing. But, but you, you, you look at that. You, you look at that and you say, this, is, this guy played great in the Super Bowl. He played very well in the NFC Championship game, and he was okay in that playoff game against the Falcons. But, but I mean, this was not a guy who they had to hide, you know, in the Super Bowl. This is a guy who went out and made huge plays in the Super Bowl, and now he's number 33. He's, he's, he's sitting on the sidelines while 32 other guys get to start at quarterback. Now, that is presuming that Wentz plays opening day. We'll see. Well, and when Nick Foles did the post-Super Bowl victory tour on shows like Ellen DeGeneres and Jimmy Kimmel, there were questions about his future, and we analyzed what he had to say. And I think hidden in there, not too far beneath the surface, this idea that maybe he can't go back to being a backup, maybe he should get a chance to be a starter, but he recognized that the Eagles held his rights for one more year— 
I was a little surprised the Eagles didn't show more flexibility in considering the possibility of rewarding him, not with a little more money, but with the chance to go somewhere else and play. Do you think the Eagles owed it to him to take more seriously whatever offers were out there for Nick Foles as the thank you? Now, here, you can go continue your career as a starter, and we'll go with Carson Wentz and Nate Sudfeld, who they apparently feel very highly about as well. No, I don't think that at all. I think Howie Roseman... Uh, wants to be a nice, magnanimous guy, but he owes uh, he owes only one thing uh, to the Philadelphia Eagles, and that is to try to put the best team possible on the field. Since apparently nobody made him the premier offer that he wanted, and I wonder if we'll ever find out exactly what happened with the Cleveland Browns. But but let's just say let's just say that no one offered two ones. And honestly, Mike, I would not have traded Nick Foles for two ones. And I know that sounds insane, but I'll tell you why. Wait, you wouldn't have given up two or you wouldn't have I would n- taken if two? I were, if I were the Eagles, I would not have traded Nick Foles for two ones. It's a very simple reason that, you know, a 16-game season uh, can be lost in the first two weeks just because teams are so good and so competitive. And let's just say, let's just say that the Eagles trade Foles and they got to play Nate Sudfeld first two games of the year. And all of a sudden, you're 0-2. And here comes Carson Wentz, still not entirely sure about his knee. And, you know, he looks good, but deep down, does he have the confidence that he had last October? You know, maybe not yet. And so, therefore, you're not the same. And so my feeling is that they, they signed Nick Foles. I think it was two years, $11 million. Everybody was saying, oh, my God, they vastly overpaid this guy. But they signed Nick Foles to be, their, to be quarterback insurance for two years. What did he do as an insurance policy last year? He paid off very well. What has changed? Nothing except... The Eagles need that insurance policy much more in 2018 than they thought they did a year ago. And in my opinion, I would much rather have the insurance policy than the uh, than the vagaries of having two future ones. I think there's too many other factors out there to know that we don't know before I could come to a conclusion on that. I'd lean toward taking the two ones. Now, what do they really think about Nate Sudfeld? And also, who else is out there or was out there in March that they could have signed as quarterback insurance for Carson Wentz because if you're Chase Daniel for example and you know that system and you're on the market right are you going to go to Philadelphia or Chicago when you know that if you go to Philadelphia you're right there you may start week one you may get to play in the postseason because of Carson Wentz's playing style so I think when you could get two ones for a guy that is destined to hit the bench I think you take the two ones and you you hope that you can navigate free agency and or trades to get yourself a number two that you can work into somebody who can get it done the way they work Nick Foles into somebody who could get it done. Yeah, I, you know, that's, that is the sort of, that's the sort of question that is, is, is interesting, but I think it's hard to know that if you have Brett Hundley as your backup quarterback this year instead of Nick Foles, 
at the end of the year. Look, I assume, and you assume too, that Carson Wentz is going to play 16 regular season games. The Eagles will probably make the playoffs, and we'll see what happens. And it's it's possible that Nick Foles throws 34 passes this year, all in garbage time. So who knows? No one knows this. But all I'm saying is, right now, today, as I sit here, the Philadelphia Eagles have a chance to be a good team for a long time. And their best team in 2018 is with Wentz followed by Foles. And so I don't think they should have traded him. The performance by Nick Foles in the Super Bowl was fueled in large part by the still inexplicable decision by Patriots coach Bill Belichick to put Malcolm Butler, the team's best defensive back, on the bench for all of the game except for one special team snap. How much do you think that lingers in New England with players still feeling maybe a little salty about having a Super Bowl ring ripped off their fingers because the coach made a decision that he hasn't felt compelled to share with anyone as to why he did it? What has interested me about that, Mike, is that uh, over and over again you've seen players hint at not being happy with what happened. Um, And in vague ways, but usually in New England it's, it's in Bill We Trust. Well, this time it strikes me anyway that it has been more of, instead of just in Bill We Trust, hey, Bill's an incredible coach, but we don't like this decision. So, I, you know, I can't, I doubt it's going to have much of a, of a bearing. I mean, remember, in 2003, uh, you had guys openly, or not openly, but privately on the Patriots telling people in the press that we are really pissed off what Bill Belichick did to Lawyer Malloy. They lost the first game of the year in Buffalo, 31 nothing, and went on to win the Super Bowl. So, I mean, you know. Remember the Tom, the Tom Jackson line, they hate their head coach. They hate their head coach. And Bill Belichick, after the, thing go, <laughs> after the Super Bowl that year, going on the ESPN set looking over at Tom Jackson and saying some very choice words to him and just giving him the death glare. Um, but, look, all I know is, you know, when the season starts, usually these things don't matter very much. Yeah, and that's what's fascinating about it. We fill the vacuum from the end of the Super Bowl. And, really, you know, we've got free agency in the draft to talk about, really from the end of the draft until the start of the season with all this talk about what may happen, what could happen, and then it starts happening all of a sudden out of the blue when the games come. Before that, though, training camp, and every year you you do your tour. How many different teams will you be visiting this year? Um. I think I'm going to see total 26 teams, but some of those will be in games. Um, I think I'm going to end up at 20, 20 camps. So, uh, yeah, I'm excited about that. I'm excited to see some of the new stories. And and uh, I think one of the coolest things is that in week three of the preseason, I'm going to be at the game where Jimmy Garoppolo will play against Andrew Luck. And that's the third preseason game. And how fun will that be? You know, I could I could write five thousand words about either quarterback coming out of that game, um, but I think there's a lot of good stories. I'm looking forward to doing them. Are you comfortable with the notion that Andrew Luck will play in that game? If he doesn't play in that game, 
you know, there's serious, serious problems with Andrew Luck playing football again, in my opinion. You know, it's just you can't go two years without playing football. You know, and if he if he's not playing by the third week of the preseason, that will be a that will be a huge huge story. And people, well, Colts fans give me a hard time for being so negative about this. But I say, folks, look look at what happened last year. They led us to believe the entire off season this guy's going to be fine. And the first time I noticed that maybe there was an issue was when Rob Chudzinski was talking to reporters at the end of the offseason program and, and acknowledging they have a plan for proceeding if Andrew Luck isn't ready to throw by the start of training camp. And I was like, whoa, whoa, wait a, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I thought it was a given he'd be good to go to throw at the right. start of training camp. And so it felt, whether it was intended or not, it was one misrepresentation after another. And now I feel like we're in that same routine again. And yes, we've seen him throw a high school ball publicly, but I just feel like until we see him, they have given us every reason to be skeptical. So show us that he's healthy. Show us that he can play. Show us that he can stay healthy. And then I'll believe that Andrew Luck is back. Um, I agree with you, Mike. I, I, I can't. I, but, but then again, I have no evidence. I have no evidence of any sort about anything other than he appeared to be throwing a football without pain uh, the last time and maybe the only time that writers and the media were allowed to see him uh, in June. So we'll see what happens. But that was maybe around June 10th. If he is not playing football 10 weeks later, you know, I'll have significant doubts about whether he's going to be able to continue his career. I've got some questions for you from the PFTPM posse. Brady, a loyal member of the group, wants to know how old you were when you first became interested in sports writing slash journalism. In fifth grade in Enfield, Connecticut, me and a friend, a guy who uh, I was good friends with, decided to write a, a community newspaper. My mother, who was a in the typing pool, at an insurance company in Hartford at the time, basically uh, basically would type up the news that we reported, and we would give it to everybody in our neighborhood. So I guess I go back to fifth grade. I always tell kids when I speak to them, like in journalism school, or, or, or you know, I said I'm, and they don't know what they want to do with their lives, really, a lot of them. I say I'm the lucky one. You know, when I was 11 years old, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. When did it become football, though? Because you go to journalism school, it can go in a lot of different well, directions went, for I you. I went to journalism school at Ohio University and never wrote. I wrote uh, two or three sports stories. I covered the women's softball team my freshman year for the school paper. But sophomore, junior, and senior, I never wrote a sports story. And I was not going to be a sports writer. I was going to cover. I might have been the state house reporter for the Columbus Dispatch. Or something, you know. I I didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, I I mean, I didn't know. I definitely thought it would be cool to be a sports writer, but I never did it. So I never really thought about it very much. And just the good fortune of getting hired in Cincinnati in 1980 to write sports as the lowest guy on the totem pole at the Cincinnati Enquirer, and sort of, I found out in 1984 covering the Bengals. That was one of the coolest things I've ever done because in training camp, I stood next to Paul Brown every day watching practice, and the coach was Sam White, who was 
you know, a mad scientist and who loved to teach people about football, even, you know, 27-year-old neophyte football writers. So I said, this is really kind of what I want to do. Plus, it's, it, it suited more of a family lifestyle. We had had one child, Laura, then, and Anne, by the time we, I moved to New York the following year, I was pregnant with Mary Beth. And so it's a, it's a pretty good life. In baseball, I covered some red stuff in Cincinnati for the Inquirer. And uh, at, at the time I did it, the four guys, the four uh, number one beat guys on the local papers who covered it all were divorced. And I said, wow, that's a little bit of a sign. So, uh, you know, so I think football is more uh, more sort of, I mean, I, I just think it's better. It's more conducive to a, a family lifestyle. How big of a football fan were you when you were a kid? I was huge. My father, we used to watch the Giants on TV growing up in Connecticut. The Patriots were, uh, when I started watching football, were in their infancy, like their fourth or fifth season. And I'm not even sure they were on TV in my town. But the Giants were everything to most of New England at the time. So we'd watch the first half of the game, and at halftime, my two brothers, me and my father, would go out in, in our yard, and we'd throw the football around, and we'd tackle each other. And it was just, I love football. I, I love baseball, too. So I, I could have seen me, once I got into sports writing, I think I would have been happy to do either one. I think there was a time when I was a kid where I liked baseball more than football. Yeah. And well, I don't because, know what turned it. I think that's it. because probably when you and I were kids, baseball was so much bigger than it is right now. Uh, baseball is a, it's it's almost. I mean, I can see a day ten years from now watching the the fervor over the World Cup when we're not even in it. I could see a time ten years from now where soccer in this country could be bigger than baseball. I don't. I don't, I, I, don't, I don't know that that'll happen, but it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, but it's been on the verge of being bigger than American sports for 40 years now. I remember yeah. back in the 70s, there was talk about soccer taking well, over and soccer taking over. Because I, think, I think because, like so many people now, I think if you ask a good sports fan, who is Harry Kane? They would know. He's the best player in the Premier League. If you ask anybody 15 years ago who was who i don't even know who the best player in the premier league was 15 years ago but if you asked them i i bet 95 out of 100 wouldn't know and i just think that's changing in part because nbc has made the premier league like a pretty attractive sport to watch on tv how good would we be as a country in the world cup if all of our best athletes played soccer instead of the sports that they play i guess pretty good but, I mean, I, I, okay, so let's just say we take a couple of those players. Let's just say. Let's say, uh, I don't know, I'll pick out two, like Deshaun Watson and Mike Trout. Okay? I, I, would, I, I, don't, I mean, Mike Trout is sort of a bigger guy. Would he be a really good soccer player if he were 30 pounds lighter and like I, I don't I don't know if he has the real athletic talent. He probably does, you know, to say be a great midfielder on a soccer team. I would think that what you're saying, Mike, is that uh, particularly in my opinion, if uh, kids in the inner city really were exposed to soccer uh, at the highest level, 
uh, I would think that it would be possible that these kids would be, you know, they could turn into great, great soccer players. But, and I I just don't know. It's just, it would be all conjecture on my part. I don't know enough about it to know what the ideal body type is. But when you think of guys like a LeBron James, right? Yeah, right. I mean, would he thrive on the pitch or would the little wiry guys run circles around him? What would he play? He's so tall. I just I mean, make make him a defender and let him destroy and, everybody I mean, who comes I, close I, to him. And I'm I'm just not sure if somebody that tall translates. You don't see what is he six nine? You don't see a lot or six eight. You don't see a lot of soccer players that tall. And I'm not sure. Maybe he would be great at it. I don't know. Would he be a goalie? I I don't know. He I can't imagine him failing at anything, but. That's why it just would be all conjecture. Well, the best basketball players aren't just tall. They're proportioned where they are built like somebody who's 5'10", 5'11". They're not that guy that, like Minute Bowl, who just grew way too quickly for his body to catch up. They're, they're, they're normal. Look, like you see him, it's like LeBron James looks like a normal human being until you see him standing next to a normal human being, and then you say that's not a normal human being. And I, you know, guys like him, like a Cam Newton, that, he's that similar kind of build where yeah. when you see him next to other people, it's like this is a giant who just slid down the beanstalk and how would those those guys do if you put them on a soccer field and depending upon the level of physicality that's permitted that would be the thing that would put Ronaldo and Messi in their place pretty quickly if those guys start banging those bodies around and and uh, you know making whatever con- I don't know how much contact you're allowed to have I don't know when you're allowed to make contact I don't know enough about it to know but just the physical intimidation from a guy who is proportioned like someone who's a soccer player but is 50% larger, that would seem to be a positive factor at some level. I would think, but if that would be the case, then, you know, what about what about if if all people in other countries as well would put all of their best like what about what about Dirk Nowitzki? Could he have transitioned and been a soccer player in Germany or, you know, Manu Ginobili or any of these guys who are from other countries? So, I, I mean, it's a good question, Mike. I just don't. All I would, I would, I could answer that probably like a talk show caller. I just, I just don't have any idea. Well, you know, and here's the reality: because it is an alternate universe type of a question, where if soccer were the sport that every kid played from the moment he or she first had a chance to catch, kick, throw a ball. If it's a soccer ball instead of a basketball, baseball, or a football, I think what happens is it's a completely different cut of our society that ends up being, you know, rising to the top of soccer. And maybe we never hear of LeBron James, or it's never even a consideration for him to play soccer. But if soccer is the dominant sport, maybe there are some Cristiano Ronaldo's and Lionel Messi's that would rise up that never really get a chance because soccer isn't isn't as prevalent here as it is elsewhere. Could be, could be. I think one of the biggest questions about that would be like bigger people, taller people and wider people would if they trained in the soccer life, okay, and so ran a lot more and so therefore were not as big. You know, LeBron James, I guess, is 270 pounds. What would he weigh as a soccer player? And would he have the physically uh, dominant presence, you know, if he, if he trained as a soccer player and, 
you know, wasn't as bulky as he as he is now. So those are things that are hard to answer. And this is one of the reasons I love doing these longer conversations. Because I had no plan whatsoever to have that discussion as as our level of knowledge and preparation for the topic would prove but it's fun to riff about these things because really who knows how good we would be as a country we have the population and we have the overall athleticism you would think that we would be very competitive if that was our top sport all right speaking of things that are unrelated to football Politics pops into football all the time now, and politics tries to make football part of the political discourse, and football would like to distance itself from it. And from time to time, you and I both stray into that discussion and debate, primarily on Twitter. How do you react when people try to shout you down with the hashtag stick to football rant? Oh, you know, I hate to be cliche, but uh, in effect... I've not said this in a long time, but I'll look up what the uh, what the job is of the person who's telling me to stick to football, and I say stick to architecture. And uh, you know, or, or you know, I, I don't tell you to stick to architecture. This is this is uh, my Twitter account. I don't only talk about football on here, um, but in general, Mike, I, I just feel like. I feel like we're in a time in our country where I don't want to wake up one day and say, where were you when all this debacle uh, of a government happened? I mean, where, and, and, and obviously there's going to be 35% of the, the populace uh, who's going to hear that and say, I could have said the same thing when Barack Obama was in office. And so we all have our own opinions about things. I just, my conscience does not allow me to sit by most times. I haven't been on Twitter much in the last month or so on purpose. I just, I've gotten away from a lot of things and started to get ready for my new job. But but essentially, I just think that um, I want to make sure that I'm not a football bot. And for people who don't like that, Either they shouldn't follow me or shouldn't read me. I won't take any. I won't take offense. Uh, but I'm going to give my opinion on things when I am so moved to do so. And if people don't like that, uh, they can they can go read somebody else, and it would be I wouldn't be upset about it at all. One of the things that's been bothering me lately is that everything has a political connotation. You can't make an observation without someone assuming that you're making a political statement. You can't be bothered by something without it being immediately a a comment that triggers the tribal reaction, the knee-jerk reaction. I mean, if you're moved by hearing children crying for their parents after they've been separated from them, if that moves you as a human being and you point that out, that 35% assumes that you're making a political statement. Well, no, I'm, I'm a human being who's moved by this, and I can't believe that this is something that's happening in the year 2018. And you can either keep your mouth shut about it, or you can share with other human beings the human reaction you have to something that, that should bother you if you have a soul. Yeah, and, you know, I, 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 had I been on Twitter talking about this, I, I, I would have gone crazy about the, uh, uh, about the children being separated from their parents. I mean, I just, this is, I, I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but, but Mike, you can't tell me that that, in some of these kids, is not going to have a long-lasting effect and a big imprint on their lives. And that just 
has bothered me to the core where two or three nights I've woken up just with this total sick feeling in the pit of my stomach said in the United States of America we are deceptively taking children from their parents I, I, I can't I can't envision any defense of that regardless of yeah this is going to motivate fewer people to come into the country I, I, even that one I can't do it I just and that to me those kind of things if anybody can defend those uh, I I just you need to go follow other people that's all well and the one thing I'd like to know that we'll never know because we won't be here in 2068 but 50 years from now how will Americans look back at 2018 and part of me doesn't really want to know what the answer to that question is I'd like to think that I know how people will look back on on this time in 50 years but the way things are going, who knows what people are going to think 50 years from now about what happened this year. Yeah, I, I think that in America we're a fairly elastic society, and our history has shown that we've gone down the road on, some, uh, on both sides of the aisle, that we've gone down and, and had real debacles uh, in our politics and, and, and everything, and we've always come back and we've been okay and so that's what i keep thinking now and look we're we're resilient people and i also think that we're good people so i just continue to think that you know uh, this too shall pass and we'll move on into a better uh you know into a better life for all of us well peter this too shall pass as well and we look forward to you joining us full time next month enjoy your remaining time off thanks for giving us so much time today look forward to our conversations on pft live and look forward to reading you every monday starting on july 16th thanks pal hey mike thanks a million you have a great day all right, folks, there he is, Peter King. I'm going to wrap it right there. We went for a full hour. That was the Thursday edition of PFTPM. We'll be back on Friday with Junior, the second straight Friday. Not Dale Junior, Florio Junior. He'll be joining us tomorrow. Enjoy your Thursday. Check us out at profootballtalk.com. Have a good one. You can find the PFTPM podcast on Art19, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, and you will, subscribe for automatic downloads. Leave a rating and review. That'll help new listeners find our show and push us up the charts. Search PFTPM for your evening update from Pro Football Talk. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.